Hi friends, welcome back. It's me again, and I'm reading to you again. This was a, uh, a little while ago, back in the spring, we tried this out for the first time. We thought it'd be fun to do a, uh, a live reading uh, from one of Joe Boot's books. The book that we did in the spring is called For Mission. Uh, we produced that into an audiobook, and I'm going to tell you shortly uh, where and how you can, uh, you can find that in its audiobook format. Uh, we had a good response to that, uh, to those sessions, and so I thought we'd, uh, we'd do it again. Uh, we're doing it a little bit bigger and a little bit, uh, a little bit more comprehensive. This book is called Gospel Culture. Many of you will know about it. It's also by Joe Boot. Subtitle is Living in God's Kingdom. There are... Five chapters. We're going to read through those in order. And again, this this project is for another audiobook recording. So you're going to hear me, um, you know, cough, clear my throat, stumble over a word here and there. And don't worry. Um, our guy Dave is an awesome uh, engineer. Once the once the real thing comes out, you're not going to notice any of that stuff. It's going to be going to sound really great. But this is a uh, this is just a time uh, where I can read with you. And I'm looking forward to that. So this is what we're going to be reading today. Gospel culture living in God's kingdom. You can go to uh, Ezra Press. You can order this in hard copy. Uh, you can get it in an an ebook version, but uh, again, we're here. We're here with you today, and for the next uh, the next few sessions, we're going to read through this book together. So, grab a drink, grab uh, grab a seat, and listen up. <clears throat> Gospel culture, living in God's kingdom, by Joseph Boot. Read by Ryan Harris. <clears throat> that was weird, but I'll probably do it again at a later date. Over 30 years ago, Francis Schaeffer asked a question that is still utterly imperative for the church to answer. How should we then live? His answer was grounded in scripture and theological reflection and encompassed a wide array of topics from art and architecture to philosophy and poetry. Schaefer rightly perceived that human beings are inevitably and always making cultures in every sphere of life they touch, whether it be in the realms of the fine arts and theology, or in those of business and industry. Even more basic, Schaefer knew that driving everything we do and think as human beings reflects a cultural worldview, and for Christians to effectively reach and engage men and women at any given time, they need to know something of the culture of the very people they are seeking to reach. I'm going to try that again. And for Christians to effectively reach and engage men and women at any given time, they need to know something of the culture of the very people they are seeking to reach. All of the great thinkers in the history of the church have known this, from Paul and Augustine to Jonathan Edwards and B.B. Warfield. In this new series of monographs by the British-Canadian Christian apologist and thinker Joe Boot, Francis Schaeffer's question will be... <clears throat> Francis Schaeffer's question will be considered and answered afresh. The Cornerstone series, 
The Cornerstone series will seek to help 21st century Christians interact in a scriptural manner with cultural trends, perspectives, and presuppositions in every sphere of life, presenting a robust Christian critique and biblical defense. The gospel speaks to the entirety of human life, and this series will accordingly seek to address all of this life under the sun with clarity. Warmly recommended. Michael A. G. Haken, Professor of Church History and Biblical Spirituality, the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary. Preface to the Series The Ezra Institute for Contemporary Christianity, or EICC, is an evangelical Christian organization dedicated to two great objects. First, the preservation and advancement of the truth, freedom, and beauty of the gospel, and second, the renewal of culture in terms of the Lordship of Jesus Christ. The gospel of the kingdom, resting as it does upon Christ's declaration of jubilee, is alone the source of true freedom, righteousness, and justice. As well, the gospel is all-encompassing in scope, a leaven that permeates and informs every area of life and thought. Regarding this comprehensive truth of full salvation, Jesus himself declared, If the Son sets you free, you shall be free indeed. John 8.36 Throughout history, the Lord has entrusted the work of gospel-centered culture building and renewal to his people. Genesis 1.28, Genesis 9.1, Matthew 28.18-20 this task is particularly urgent in our day because the organs and institutions of modern culture have been thoroughly saturated by humanistic and pagan assumptions about the source and nature of truth and freedom. <clears throat> These pretensions have steadily redefined intellectual, social, familial, sexual, and ethical norms, unleashing real evil and enslaving Western society in a radical opposition to Christ and the freedom brought by the gospel. From the school, academy, and courthouse, to senates, parliaments, and palaces, the Christian faith is being systematically expunged from public life and ignored or assaulted in our corridors of learning and power. If we love the gospel, our neighbors, and freedom, Christians must take up the cultural task with faith and courage. Let's see, how are my recording levels? Good. The EICC is committed to bringing a comprehensive gospel to bear on all of life, challenging and serving culture shapers in all spheres, resourcing and equipping Christian leaders and professionals in public life, and teaching believers to understand and advance the truth, beauty, and freedom of the gospel in all its varied implications. By encouraging and intellectually resourcing Christian engagement with culture, we believe that biblical truth... <clears throat> Stumbled over that. Let's try again. By encouraging and intellectually resourcing Christian engagement with culture, we believe that biblical truth can once again captivate hearts and minds and shape our future to the glory of God. Philippians 1.7, Colossians 1.15-20 The Cornerstone series of short, focused monographs published by Ezra Press is intended to be an accessible point of entry for thoughtful Christians wishing to develop or strengthen their understanding of the scope and implications of the gospel, and of the particular but timeless challenges to that gospel being posed by non-Christian thought in the 21st century. From there, our hope is that this initiative will be further used of the Lord to animate, encourage, and strengthen the public witness and testimony of God's Church, so that she might live up to her calling as the pillar and support of the truth, 1 Timothy 3.15, so that, through the Church, the manifold wisdom of God 
might be made known. Ephesians 3.10 Randall Curry, Board Chair, Ezra Institute for Contemporary Christianity 1. Gospel Culture, Why It Matters <clears throat> Of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. Isaiah 9.7 The Crisis of Culture Commenting on the life and thought of Friedrich Nietzsche, G.K. Chesterton set forth a universal truth that the man who thinks without the proper first principles goes mad. Madness would increasingly seem to be the right term to this. <clears throat> Madness would increase. <clears throat> Madness would increasingly seem to be the right term to describe the direction of our culture today. Our first principles for the social order have clearly ceased to be the word of God. And tragically, that same word is being abandoned by large parts of the church itself. In its place, man's own will is permitted to rule and determine truth and justice, and thereby the direction of culture. The insightful Canadian philosopher George Grant understood the West's present cultural perspective well. Quote, justice is understood to be something strictly human, having nothing to do with obedience to any divine command or... <clears throat> Try again. Justice is understood to be something strictly human, having nothing to do with obedience to any divine command or conformity to any pattern laid up in heaven. Moral principles, like all other social conventions, are something made on earth. Human freedom requires that the principles of justice be the product of human agreement or consent. That is, they must be the result of a contract, and these principles must therefore be rooted in an understanding of the interests of human beings as individuals rather than in any sense of duty or obligation to anything above humanity. The terms of the contract may well change as circumstances and interests change, but the restraints free individuals accept must always be horizontal in character rather than vertical." End quote. In this rejection of vertical accountability for horizontal relativity, modern man is conferring on himself the contractual right to redefine his gender irrespective of creational chromosomes, the right to murder, abortion, the right to polygamy, sodomy, bestiality, or any other sexual predilection, the right to suicide, the right to euthanize children and the elderly or sick, the right to homosexual marriage, the right to prostitution and pornography, the right to suppress worship of the living God and the free speech of Christians, the right to blasphemy and endless violations of Sabbath, all dressed in the garb of freedom and human dignity, which, to <clears throat> which amounts to nothing but radical autonomy. Thus today, few would deny that our Western moral principles are shifting like sand, or that the metamorphosis of the Church's relationship with the surrounding culture is happening before our eyes. I'm just going to try that sentence again. <clears throat> Thus today, few would deny that our Western moral principles are shifting like sand, or that the metamorphosis of the Church's relationship with the surrounding culture is happening before our eyes. The profoundly compromised character of much of the modern Church is no secret. Liberalizers in both evangelical and mainline denominations love to push their apostasy to the world in an effort to convince themselves that media coverage and approval from... <clears throat> in an effort to convince themselves that media coverage and approval from cultural elites means approval and sanction from God. Since cultural circumstances change and moral truth is reduced to social convention by the contemporary muses, 
Many of the leaders within our churches have long forsaken anything resembling a scriptural and historical understanding of our world-transforming faith. Consequently, understanding both the nature and relationship of the scriptural gospel to culture has never been more vital to the future of the Western Church and the destiny of our world. Let's try that again. I was whistling through my teeth there in that last, uh, that last word, destiny. <clears throat> Consequently, understanding both the nature and relationship of the scriptural... <clears throat> Consequently, understanding both the nature and relationship of the scriptural gospel to culture has never been more vital to the future of the Western Church and the destiny of our world. That was better. The meaning of culture. To gain a proper understanding of how the gospel relates to culture, we must begin by clarifying the meaning of culture itself. The English words culture and agriculture are derived from a Latin root cholera and are related to cultus or worship. The direct association of culture with worship is most noticeable in our ongoing use of the word cult for various religions. Culture is perhaps best understood as the public manifestation of the religious ground motive, i.e. worship, of a people. Culture is therefore a state of being cultivated by intellectual and moral tilling in terms of prevailing cultus and by natural extension forms a particular... <clears throat> Culture is therefore a state of being cultivated by intellectual and moral tilling in terms of a prevailing cultus and by natural extension forms a particular type of civilization. This cultus is always communitarian and is transmitted through the family, education, law, art, and other varied institutions shaping cultural life. As Herman Doyaward points out, the religious ground motive of a culture can never be ascertained from the ideas and the personal faith of the individual. It is truly a communal motive that governs the individual, even when one is not consciously aware of it or acknowledges it. To illustrate practically, if a person travels to Saudi Arabia, Syria, or Pakistan, they experience Islamic culture, expressed in everything from law and education to art and diet. If one goes to the major cities of India, where one experiences Hindu culture as the social order. Sorry, try again. If one goes to the major... <clears throat> if one goes to the major cities of India, there one experiences Hindu culture as the social order. In North Korea and China, one encounters Marxist-oriented cultures. The traveler in Tibet encounters Buddhist culture, and so forth. In the West today, we increasingly experience a humanistic, secular culture, deeply influenced by pagan spirituality, which at the same time displays the cultural vestiges of Christianity. The spiritual mainspring of Western culture has been undergoing a seismic shift for many years, so that Christian truth has largely ceased to give direction to the historical development of our society. This is a precarious place to be, for at this point a real crisis emerges at the foundation of that society's culture. Such a crisis is always accompanied by spiritual uprootedness. That radical uprooting is all around us. Henry Van Til thus accurately defined culture as religion externalized. All culture is the expression of a people's worship, in terms of which they cultivate their society. <clears throat> Great book, says Jason. Thanks, Jason.
Hi, Dad. The direction of culture. In biblical categories, culture is what human beings make of God's creation. This is what our first parents were set in the garden to do as royal priests in God's cosmic temple, to subdue and develop all things under God and turn creation into a God-glorifying culture, cultivating everything in terms of His will and purpose as an act of worship. This command has never been rescinded. The Reformed theologian Herman Bavinck points out, quote, Genesis 1.26 teaches that... <clears throat> Try again. Quote, Genesis 1.26 teaches us that God had a purpose in creating man in his image, namely that man should have dominion. If now we comprehend the force of this subduing or dominion under the term of culture, we can say that culture in its broadest sense is the purpose for which God created man after his image. End quote. Culture making is therefore inescapable for all God's image bearers, for it is an expression of worship. Human beings will turn the visible and invisible materials of God's creation into culture, either as covenant keepers or covenant breakers, since all people are God's creatures and are either obedient or disobedient as they stand in relationship to God. This antithesis in cultural life is something Scripture clearly teaches. In Romans 1, Paul is explicit that there are ultimately only two possible directions for culture. These theological alternatives are mutually exclusive. One rests upon worship of the Creator, the other upon worship of creation. The worship of any aspect of the creation is called idolatry in Scripture, and this leads to cultural decay. It follows, then, that there is no such thing as a neutral culture, for on this Pauline basis, no institution and no cultural activity can ever be religiously neutral. It is true, of course, that Christians who worship the Creator and humanists who deny the Creator and worship one or more aspects of creation pursue many of the same cultural tasks. Both marry and build families, for example. Both establish educational institutions. Both make fine art, produce films, and write music. However, though the structure of the musical notation remains the same for both, the direction of the music is different. In the same way, though the legal structure of the marriage will in many cases be the same, the directions of a Christian and non-Christian marriage are radically different. The structure of something concerns God's creational laws and ordained pattern that pertain to it. For example, with regard to the family, church, and state. Whereas the direction of these spheres concerns the religious orientation that they have. There are many structures in God's creation, but only two directions. We are either oriented toward God or toward idolatry, in marriage, family, church, state, art, science, and every other sphere. We will either seek to serve and glorify God in each area of life, or our lives will have an apostate direction, with no central place for God and His revelation. I note this important distinction between structure and direction because... <clears throat> I'm going to try that again. I note this important distinction between structure and direction because as Christians we recognize the reality of the fall and hence the problem of sin in all human activities and institutions. Regarding marriage, for example, God's ordained structure for marriage is still the same as at creation, but the direction of the hearts of those in the marriage relationship is, when unregenerate, turned in an apostate direction. <clears throat> Likewise, the essential challenge of political life, as with family and cultural... <clears throat> 
I'm snapping because it uh, somebody told me to do that somewhere. It makes a a spike on the waveform so that when you edit it back, you know exactly where you uh, where you need to cut in and out. It's a good tip. Where was I? <clears throat> I'm going to start at the beginning of this paragraph because I can't remember where I was. I note this important distinction between structure and direction because as Christians we recognize the reality of the fall and hence the problem of sin in all human activities and institutions. Regarding marriage, for example, God's ordained structure for marriage is still the same as at creation, but the direction of the hearts of those in the marriage relationship is, when unregenerate, turned in an apostate direction. Likewise, the essential challenge of political life, as with family and church life, is not that God's ordained structure of the state is broken, but that many of those involved in politics have hearts and thereby convictions and ideologies that are hostile to God and his word. To put this another way, when people opine that their marriage failed, the Christian recognizes that it was not the God-given structure of marriage that failed, but rather that the problem lay in one or both of the hearts of the couple concerned, so that their relationship broke down. Likewise, with respect to the state, failed states do not lead us to conclude that God's ordination of the role of the state is at fault, but that various actors within the state failed, leading to its collapse. In short, sociocultural and political challenges are at root fundamentally religious and moral challenges. <clears throat> Try again. In short, sociocultural and political challenges are at root fundamentally religious and moral challenges that center, <clears throat> that center in the heart of man. The Transformation of Culture In view of all this, it is clear that implicit in the Christian gospel is a particular vision of culture. Indeed, the gospel is a culture, because it is centered on the worship of the living God through Jesus Christ and the enthronement of Christ as Lord over the heart, mind, soul, and strength of every believer. That the gospel forms a new culture is thus an inescapable deduction from the meaning of both terms. If culture is the public expression of the worship of a people, and the gospel restores man to true worship, that is, of the creator, not the creation, then the gospel restores man to true culture, which is the kingdom of God. Man was not made to live a fragmented and dissonant life, but was made an integral being to worship and glorify God and have dominion under God in all things. The gospel fully restores man to his calling to worship and to serve, beginning with the regeneration of the heart of man and thereby effecting a radical change in the core of man's being. Since the gospel affects such a great transformation, we must conclude that the dreary condition of our culture today is in large measure due to the apostasy of the church and Christian family from their respective callings. Since the so-called Enlightenment, Christians have steadily surrendered the various organs of culture, education, law, arts, charity, medicine, government, almost entirely to the increasingly humanistic state. We have progressively retreated into a pietistic bubble concerned largely with eternal verities and keeping souls from hell, and we have faithlessly limited Christ's jurisdiction to the institutional church. The result has been the marginalization of the Christian church and a change of religion in the public sphere. Some freedoms for the gospel remain, though threatened, but history shows... <clears throat> Try that sentence again. 
Some freedoms for the gospel remain, though threatened. But history shows that freedoms not fought for are soon forfeited. If we love God and our neighbor, then a full-orbed gospel... <clears throat> if we love God and our neighbor, then a full-orbed gospel culture for all of life will be of great importance to us, not simply our inner piety. <clears throat> We will want to witness to the reality of our cosmos-renewing gospel and call people and nations to repentance and the life, joy, beauty, and truth that is found in Jesus Christ and his rule alone. Try that again. <coughs> we will want to witness to the reality of our cosmos-renewing gospel and call people and nations to repentance and the life, joy, beauty, and truth that is found in Jesus Christ and his rule alone. This great concern for cultural transformation is found everywhere in Scripture. The Bible is filled with accounts of God's servants confronting sin, idolatry, and all false worship, and thereby transforming kings, kingdoms, and cultures with the truth. Moses had the temerity to confront Pharaoh. He did not complain to God that spiritual leaders shouldn't confront political re <clears throat> He did not complain. He did not complain to God that spiritual leaders shouldn't confront political leaders regarding political matters. The prophet Nathan confronted King David for his adultery. Elijah confronted Ahab for his lawlessness. Daniel confronted the pagan king Nebuchadnezzar until he acknowledged that the Most High is sovereign over the kingdoms of men and gives them to anyone he wishes. Daniel 4.25 Nebuchadnezzar was converted and declared of the Lord, that his dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol the honor of the King of Heaven. Nope. Read that wrong. I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the King of Heaven, for all his works are right and his ways are just. Daniel 4, 34 and 37. Jonah dramatically confronted pagan Nineveh, which led to citywide repentance from the monarch down. Amos prophesied against the surrounding pagan nations for violating God's law. Nehemiah petitioned the king of Persia for the return of the Jews to Jerusalem and found favor. Esther intervened with Xerxes. <coughs> Esther intervened with Xerxes. <laughs> Esther intervened with Xerxes on behalf of her people. John the Baptist confronted Herod for rejecting God's design for marriage. The apostle Peter confronted the Jewish Sanhedrin with the ultimate authority of Christ and his determination to obey God rather than men. The Apostle Paul <clears throat> The Apostle Paul confronted the Athenian court, Felix, Festus, and Agrippa, with Christ's lordship and his gospel. Jesus himself called Herod Antipas a fox and reminded Pilate that he had no authority save what was given him from above. Why should these servants of God have bothered with the socio-cultural order and its leaders? Why did they interfere with the political and cultural life of the nations? These great saints, and of course the Lord above all in history, all dramatically impacted the culture of their time. A critical biblical cue... <clears throat> now that I talked about that snap, I feel like I always have to do it. A critical biblical clue to their motivation... <clears throat> A critical biblical clue <laughs> A critical biblical clue to their mo 
A critical biblical clue to their motivation is given to us in Psalm 2, where the identity and authority of Christ is prophetically set forth. Quote, Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage, and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron, and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear, and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest he be angry, and you perish in the way. For his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. It is important to stress in our current church context, in light of texts such as this, that God does not hold a referendum on the identity and role of his Son. He is not dependent on majority support. The voice of the people is not the voice of God. God does not seek our approval of his absolute claims. Christ is king, not because or when we accept it. His word is not true only if kings or politicians or magistrates acknowledge it. Christ's lordship is total, absolute, objective reality, irrespective of the desires and wills of men. Nowhere in Scripture are national cultures, their kings and rulers, commanded to be neutral or impartial to various religious claims in the public space, as though man were judge over God. All men and all rulers are required to kiss the Son, that is, acknowledge his authority, and submit to him. Scripture is very plain that all things are being made subject to Christ in heaven and on earth. 1 Corinthians 15.28, Colossians 1.15-20 And we are commanded to pray for his kingdom and will to be done on earth as in heaven. In sum, all worship, lordship, and sovereignty either belong to Christ the Creator and Redeemer, the transcendent source of all truth, <clears throat> excuse me, I'm going to try that again, in sum, all worship, lordship, and sovereignty either belong to Christ, the Creator and Redeemer, the transcendent source of all truth to which we are all accountable, or the God concept is to be found within creation. I have argued that these are the two forms of worship in the world, and therefore the two ultimate cultural choices. Chesterton correctly perceived the historical implications of this antithesis in the nations of the world. Quote, it is only by believing in God that we can ever criticize the government. Abolish God, and the government becomes the God. That fact is written across all human history. Wherever the people do not believe in something beyond the world, they will worship the world. But above all, they will worship the strongest thing in the world. End quote. We will worship. Try that again. We will worship either the triune creator or we will worship the creature by absolutizing some aspect of creation. Typically, as scripture and history reveal, this has been man himself embodied in the king, ruler, or state. But the gospel tells us that Jesus Christ, as both fully man and fully God, is sovereign Lord and that he alone is worthy of all worship, praise, and glory. And so the prophet says, 
Of the increase of his government and peace, there shall be no end. Isaiah 9.7 His resurrection life and power not only mean the transformation of all culture, they mean finally that all men and nations shall bow at the feet of Jesus. Philippians 2.10-11 All right, guys, that was the uh, the preparatory material as well as the uh, the first chapter, chapter one. There are five chapters in here, and we'll see uh, see how many times we get to get to do another reading like this. It's been great to uh, to be with you. Again, the book is Gospel Culture: Living in God's Kingdom, written by Joseph Boot. You can get it at EzraPress.ca and watch, uh, watch and listen. Uh, keep checking back on uh, on these channels. Uh, don't forget to sign up for our email list, and we will let you know when these are available as uh, or in their audio format. It's been fun. See you soon. Thank you for listening. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the podcast for Cultural Reformation, brought to you by the Ezra Institute for Contemporary Christianity. Please take a moment to like, share, and rate the podcast on social media and your favorite listening platform. For more resources, please visit www.ezrainstitute.ca.